There's a chill in the air. We use temperature metaphors to express emotion. I was chilled to the bone. A chill ran up my spine. We use these kind of metaphors to describe feelings of emotion when we're scared, about to make a decision, but we finally have to step into it. We say, oh, but, but I got cold feet. We experience something that scares us and we say, my blood ran cold or I broke into a cold sweat. And it's during these different temperature moments in our life that we long for warmth. We long for the heat of the sun. We long for, for God to be involved in our life. In just a moment, you can move from a mountain in your life to a valley. That's exactly what we find with Elijah. In just a few moments, he moves from a mountain to a valley, and it's in the valley you find those temperatures, those cold feet, those cold sweats begin to occur. And it can happen quickly. I mean, imagine you're with me on my motorcycle. We're in South Dakota. We're going down one of the most incredible motorcycle rides you can ride. It's called Needles Highway. We begin up at the top. No, we don't begin at the top. Let's go put up the slide of the uh, Needles Highway. We begin up at the top, and it's a beautiful, beautiful day. Pine trees all around us. And all of a sudden, we begin to plunge down in just a few minutes, in just a few moments, in just a few miles. All of a sudden, the temperature has dropped 10 degrees, and we are in a valley. And here in the valley, you can feel the chill begin. You can feel the cold. You can feel the loneliness. You can feel the what happened. How did things change so quickly? It's in the valley you feel discouraged. It's in the valley you feel bored. It's in the valley you feel depressed. It's in the valley you wonder if you're really there. It's in the valley you feel squeezed in. You don't have the open stance that you once had, and it becomes chilly and cold in the midst of the valley. And you wonder what happened to God. You wonder what happened to His presence. You wonder where He is in your life. But some of those same emotions in the valley could be the same emotions you experience on the top of a mountain. I mean, travel with me to Rocky Mountain State Park. Put the picture up. Rocky Mountain State Park, we're now at the plain level. Again, it's a gorgeous, beautiful, warm day. But you decide head up to the mountain. And as you head your way up to the mountain, you notice the same thing. The temperature begins to drop. It gets cold. We say things like it's lonely at the top. The decisions and responsibilities as you get up higher. The, 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 the earth isn't warmed quite as much and it's colder up there. You accomplished all your vision, all your goals that you had for yourself, and now you're sort of bored. What else is there? I've done everything I had to do. You start wondering who you can trust and who your friends are. It feels lonely because you wonder, do people care about you? Do they love you? Do they, they want to get to know you or do they just want a piece of your mountain? And up in the coldness of the top of the mountain, though things are going well, you still wonder, where is the fire? Where is the presence? The presence of others, the presence of God, the presence of good relationships. How can I know what God wants me to know here? And Elijah, through the next couple chapters that we're going to discover in the next few months, is he is going to go from mountain to valley and mountain to valley. And he's going to find the same God that's with him in the mountain is the same God that's with him in the valley. And the fire of God is available in the mountains and valleys of your life as well. And as we journey through, we're going to look at uh, Elijah's mountain and then Elijah's valley. In fact, let me put a picture up. This is actually Mount Carmel. We'll be at this in a few weeks. That's the actual Mount Carmel that he will stand upon and call the fire of God down upon when he goes face-to-face with the prophets of Baal. But then, just a few verses later, he'll plunge down into the valley, literally and spiritually and emotionally. 
So I hope as we study this journey together with Elijah, you'll find that there's a God who's available for you in your life, right here and right now. We're going to look at four R's. God's going to reveal himself through the rain, through the raven, through relief, and through resurrection. Let me look at the first one together. The first one is that God reveals himself. He's the God of rain. Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord of God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew or rain these years except by my word. Now this is a powerful moment. If you're a prophet, so the crescendo of your career would be God using you to speak out against evil or injustice. And more than that, if God would choose you to speak out against the biggest source of evil or injustice, that would be the ultimate call of God in your life. So this is a mountaintop moment for Elijah as a prophet. He is standing before Ahab, and he is saying to Ahab, which is an ancient version of Stalin or Hitler, I'll show you in a second why, and he says, what you're doing is wrong, God has seen it, God's going to deal with it, and God has anointed me with the authority and power to say, no more rain for you, no more do for you. And here he is being used by God. He's fearful, sure. You'll find out why in a second. But he's courageous. He's bold. He's confident. He's going face to face, toe to toe with the source of evil and saying, God has provided rain. He has been the source of the mountain blessings. But no more because you've stepped out of line. Now let's jump back one chapter and we'll find out just how evil Ahab is. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Look at that next phrase. More than all who were before him. It came to pass. As though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the source of confusion, the source of control, added to his sins, the daughter of Ethbal, the king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Then he summarizes again, in case you missed it. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So take everything that Solomon did, everything that Saul did, everything that David did, everything that Rehoboam did and Jeroboam, add it all up and Ahab has exceeded that in his injustice and his evil and his idolatry and his rebellion. And yet this is a mountaintop because if you're a prophet, you dream of the day that God would say, I want you to go and to confront and be my voice speaking against the source of evil that is this guy. In fact, this is such a powerful mountaintop moment that the book of James will reference this and say, Elijah was a man of prayer and God used him. God heard him when he prayed and the very heavens were shut up from rain because of his prayer life and encourages us. That if you're in a mountaintop moment in your life and God is raining down the blessings, continue to pour out God's power, continue to be grateful for Him, continue to be a person of prayer because God listens to the voice of men and women. And as He's at this mountaintop of His career, just one verse later, He will plunge deep into a valley. Look at the next verse. God is no longer going to provide for the rain. He's now going to have to provide through the ravens. Verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him saying, get away, get away from here, turn aside, hide by the brook, Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The same God who said, go, be bold, confront. One verse later says, run away, hide, you're in trouble. You just ticked off, though you're obedient, the most evil man I've ever seen. 
Hide, run. And there's going to be no more rain. Thanks to you faithfully delivering the message I gave you to deliver. But I'm going to provide for you a little brook. So I'm going to provide for you a brook that's going to take care of your needs. And now as he plunges down into a valley spiritually, emotionally, physically, he's now being hunted by the most evil man that's been known for centuries, or certainly years. God says, I'm going to now meet you in a different way. No longer am I going to be the rain from the sky. I'm now going to provide through the ravens. I've given you a brook, verse 5, and he, he went in and did according to the word of God. And here he is obeying again. Elijah is just constantly obeying God. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. Look at verse 6. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and then bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. I mean, when you're in the valley, many times God gives you just enough, not even to make it through a whole day, just enough to make it from a morning to an evening. And then God shows up again. He gives you just enough to make it from that evening to the next day. You say, oh, but I love the rain days when it just poured down blessing all the time. But God says, yeah, yeah, but you're not in the mountain anymore. I'm with you in the valley. In the valley, I provide to the ravens. And in one sense, it's a neat time. It's a neat time because how cool is it that God is hand-delivering you takeout every morning and every evening? That God is there. It's also a very difficult time because I don't want just enough for this morning or just enough for tonight. I want enough for the long haul. God, what about tomorrow? And it's not like these, these ravens are showing up with, with wrapped Subway sandwiches for him. I mean, let's put our imaginations on hold for a second. Let's picture what it would really be like. Birds are bringing you meat. Where do you think they got the meat? I'm not sure I want bird meat sandwiches. I'm not sure I want the bread that they picked up wherever they got the bread. Sure, it came from God, but still, this is not the food I prefer. This is not the rainy crop food that I was used to. So I'm eating meat. God's given me, but it's not necessarily everything I wanted, but it's everything I need. And it's just enough in the morning and it's just enough in the evening. And yet, here's what often happens. We obey God in the valley and we hope that by obeying God in the valley, it'll lead to a mountain. But more times than not, what I've found is when you're in the valley and you're trying to create a formula to get out of the valley, God doesn't want you to get out of the valley. God wants to teach you how to trust him in the valley. And so when you obey God in the valley, sometimes you get a deeper valley. But that's often what happens. Look what happens here. And it happened, verse 7, after a while, back, back up, still reading that verse, happened after a while that the brook dried up. You've got to be kidding me. I'm eating bird food every morning and every day, but at least God had a brook for me that I was drinking from, and now the brook dries up. Well, because there's been no rain in the land. Now he is, he is experiencing the consequence of the judgment against Ahab. Oh, this is terrible. This is horrific. And yet the image of a raven providing for you and me and providing for Elijah becomes an image used all through the Scriptures. In fact, this uh, Torah scroll is an actual historic document. This particular one was stolen from the uh, Jewish people by the Nazis. It was one of the few that wasn't burned. It was later held by the communists and then returned to Israel in 1990. Josh McDowell's letting us borrow it because it's a 10, 11, 10 service today. I'm going to talk about how we can be sure that the copying techniques used over time, that we have a reliable document before us. So here on my left, your right, is the book of Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. And in Genesis, it actually references the idea of ravens. And ravens is a picture 
of God being in control of the heavens and God providing for us. Next slide, let me show you. In Genesis 4, we begin to see, of 8 rather, that God controls the skies. And in Noah, he's looking for the God who controls the skies to dry up the rain. Elijah's looking to the skies for God to provide the rain. But look how a raven is used. He sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. So it's during these valley times that God provides a raven to say, will you trust me to be sovereign? Will you trust me to be in control of the heavens, of your career, of your future, of your child's life, of your children's obedience, of what's going on? Will you trust me to be the God of the raven who controls what you're worried about? But ravens are also a picture of God providing financially for us or providing for our needs. It says that in the book of Job. So Job's going through a horrific valley. And he says, who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? So again, for, for those valley times, God wants you to know that he is the God of the skies and he is the God who provides. And just like he provides for the ravens and for the birds of the air, as Jesus would say, he will provide for you emotionally, the strength you need, the comfort you need during your valley moments as well. To which... What will God do now? The brook's dried up. We're now going to move from his valley to the widow's valley. And God's no longer going to provide through the rain or the raven. He's going to begin to provide through relief. Here's what he says in the next verse. He says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon. Dwell there. And here's how I'm going to begin to work in this next valley of your life. I am going to command a widow to provide for you. Now, notice, he says he commands the widow. We don't know if that's supernaturally he commanded or he talked to her directly. By the time she shows up, it doesn't sound like she's ever talked to him or wants to talk to God. But God says, trust me, I'm going to work in these circumstances that a widow will bring you relief. And through that, you will bring her relief. So he arose. Again, here he's obedient. He went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, please. Bring me a little cup of water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called her and said, Oh, could you bring me a morsel of bread as well? What we're going to find out in a moment is she is in a deep valley. She's picking up these sticks to make a fire, her last meal, before she and her son die of starvation. Look at the next verse. Verse 12. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread to give you. Only a handful of flour in a bin and a, a, just a little bit of oil in a jar. And see, look, look at my life. See, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I can go in and start a fire, prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat the one little cake we got left and die. Now, this is a valley. She's facing her mortality. She's facing the terminalness of her situation. And she said, you're asking me to help you? I can't even help myself. Now, I don't know what you would say to the widow. I would say, wow, that sounds rough. That sounds tough. You know, keep your bread. You eat it. I don't need it. But God does something so unusual to this woman in the valley. He says, in order for you to know me in the valley, you need to find relief from me by being relief to someone else. And when you're discouraged or depressed, your eyes are all on yourself. I can't believe this is happening. This is so unfair. This is so inappropriate. God, you know, I can't believe you'd let this happen to me. Your eyes are all on yourself. 
And what God will call you to do when you're in a discouraged moment is to take your eyes off yourself and say, I'm depressed, but who else is depressed I could help? I'm discouraged, but who else is discouraged I could help? That God will encourage you and challenge you to lift up your eyes from your own circumstances to look for other people you could encourage. And it's in the process of being relief to others that God will be relief to you. Look how he says it. Elijah says to her, I know you're about to die, but do not fear. Hello? What do you mean, do not fear? Go and do as you have said. Go make that food. But make me a small cake from it first. How bold is that? Hey, before you have your last meal, make me a cake. You know, Elijah is great. He makes me a chocolate cake. I mean, he's asking widow for a chocolate cake. Make me a cake with what little resources you have. Give to God first, and he will take care of the rest. He continues, he says, if you will give to me first, then afterward, make some for yourself and your son. If you'll give to God first, even out of the little and the only you have, then here's what God will do. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. If you will trust me in this circumstance, if you'll trust God in this circumstance, this valley will be a growth tool. This decision to put God's priorities ahead of whatever else you need will be a tool that will grow you in ways nothing else can. So what will she do? Just to give you an idea of how dire the circumstances are, there are people who, all over the world today, who don't just go getting sticks. They actually eat sticks and eat dirt because of starvation. Here's a picture from Feed My Starving Children. This is a child by the name of Pa Bezwen, which literally means, I don't need you. They named their child, I don't need you. Because their kids are starving to death and they can't afford food and there is no food, they go to the market and they buy mud pies, literally mud and water, so their kids can eat mud so at least their stomach isn't growling while they're going to bed starving. And this is common all over the world, people in this kind of dire circumstance and valley that we're reading about this widow is in. And one of the reasons we at Horizon are committed to working with Feed My Starving Children that we pack together. We packed over a million meals together because we believe that God will be relief to us in our discouragement and our depression when we are giving relief to others. We're sending 12 teams this summer, or this year, many going on this summer, to work with orphans in Cancun and Monterey. We're sending teams down to Haiti where there's this kind of starvation. North Korea, that literally there's rickets all over the place in, in people's backs because they literally eat sticks because that's all they have to eat. And we believe that God has called us to be relief to people in valleys as a church. Here, near, and far. With City Gospel. By serving each other. By serving the community. Because we believe that the lessons of the widow are lessons for us. But what if you're in the valley? And God calls you to think about other people to get eyes off yourself. What will she do? I'll show you. Next verse. So she went away. And she did according to the word of Elijah. So she obeyed. And she and her household ate for many days. God has shown up. It looks like we're headed toward a mountaintop. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. She found relief by being relief. She found that God was faithful when she chose to put him first. But what I tell you before, often it's when we're obedient in the valley that things get worse. 
Because God wants us to trust Him, not use Him just to fix our circumstances. And things get really bad. Next verse, here's what happens. Now it happened. After these things, what things? See, she obeyed God in the most dire circumstance. She chose to trust Him things. In those things, see, she was doing it right things. The son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. He died. And she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come here to bring my sin to remembrance? Have you come here to kill my son? You told me God would provide if I did this. I did it. I trusted. I stepped out. And I still lost my son. Well, I've been in that valley. Maybe you've been in that valley. Maybe it's not a loss of a son, but maybe it's something so tragic that you felt like God had promised you and you stepped out and you did your part and it just crumbled around you and you're feeling exactly like she is. God, why would I be trusting you? Why did you even come to my life? I'd rather, why even give me the false hope and then slam the door in my face like you did here? And now God is going to take her from this deep, deep, deep valley. She's not just in a valley, she's in a deep valley. She's not just in a depression, she's in the great depression. And now God is going to give her something that is going to skyrocket her up to a mountaintop she could never even imagined. The same thing he's going to provide for you and I is the same thing he provides for her. No longer is he going to work through the rain. No longer is he working through the raven or even by being relief. He is now going to give her what we all need, which is resurrection. Look at the next verse. And he said to her, Give me your son. He took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying. He laid him on the bed. And he cried out to the Lord saying, Oh Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? To which my theological mind goes, you can't say that. God's not the author of evil. Maybe you should, Elijah, you should really be saying, did you allow that to happen? You don't tell God that he killed her son. You don't tell God he was the author of tragedy. But Elijah's got chutzpah. This is how I feel. This is what's going on. This seems so wrong, God. God, let me tell you what's going on. And God is big enough to take our, our challenges. God is big enough to take our doubts. And God allows him to speak. And God is going to answer this prayer. God, what are you doing? Next verse. And so Elijah stretches himself out on the child. He's literally laying on the child, the dead child. And he does it three times. He'll lay on the child. Three times he'll petition God for this. Three times he'll petition God to bring that which was dead alive. Three times we'll move from death to life by a pleading of Elijah for the son of the widow. And he said, Oh Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. And the soul of the child came back to him. And he revived. <coughs> he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And she goes from the deepest, darkest valley to having a level of joy and mountaintop experience she never could have imagined to lose and find that which is most valuable. And she cries out to Elijah, now by this, not the relief, by this, not the miracle of the oil, by this, not the bread miracle, 
By this resurrection, I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord is in your mouth is true. As Jesus will say in Luke 24, as he expounded the scriptures to them after resurrection, that all of the Bible is really about him. For he is the ultimate widow's son who died. He is the one that pleaded three times in a garden to say, please, Father, I don't want to go to the cross. Please, I don't want to have to face separation from you. And he pleads as the ultimate son three times and God says, no, you have to die. You have to go into the deepest, darkest, worst valley you could ever imagine. And Jesus plunges into hell itself and in eternity on the cross when God says, my... I am putting the sin of all mankind upon you. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is here that he will be in the grave for how many days? Three days. And after three times, three pleads, three moments, the Holy Spirit will come upon him. And like Elijah, the Holy Spirit will plead upon God to resurrect him from the dead. Will plead on our behalf. Just as He intercedes for us in our prayers, He intercedes for Jesus who's in the grave, and God will raise Him up from the grave, and all of a sudden He will defeat death. He'll defang pain itself. Death, where is thy victory? Grave, where is your victory upon us? Because ultimately Jesus in resurrection comes and gives us what we most needed. So that we would say the same thing she would say. Now by this, the resurrection of Jesus. By this, I can't believe it was predicted. By this, this is so clear. The vision is so clear. He's the ultimate son. By this, we would know that Jesus was the sent one of God. By this, we would know that whatever is going on in our life, whatever mountain or whatever valley we're in, whatever great valley we're in, we can say, it feels like God doesn't love me. It feels like God has abandoned me, but we look to the R of resurrection. He says, the one thing it can't mean, whatever's going on in your life, the one thing it can't mean is he doesn't love you. Because he sent the ultimate son to die for you. The ultimate son to take on the hell, the valley of valleys for you. So as you're going through a valley, know that the one thing it's not is that he's mad at you. It's the one thing he's not that he doesn't care about you. It's the one thing he's not that he's not willing to go into the valley with you. And here the son shows us a God who sympathizes with us. A high priest who empathizes with us. A father who knows what it's like if you've lost a son to say, I've lost a son too. The God who can relate to the widow's loss of a son is the God who would give his son. And that same God says, as dark and as deep and as difficult as the valley is that you're in, what I'm going to do in and through that valley is going to provide a mountaintop upon mountaintop. I'm going to bring glory to myself and to the world through your circumstance in something you could never imagine. You may not see it this side of eternity, but here's what I'm going to tell you. You can trust me, the God of resurrection, that I will use this valley of valleys to bring about my glory. And you will say, I never knew it could be this sweet. I never knew God could be so powerful. I never knew he loved me so much that in the rearview mirror, I now know what that valley was really all about. And God provides his fire. The fire of his presence in the mountains and the valleys. So our takeaway today is this. I'd like you to trust God this week in one of the R's. This week, I want you to have on your mind every day, 
which are am I trusting God for this week? Even say that to God. God, I'm trusting you this week. And maybe you're in a time of blessing. Maybe things couldn't be better in your career. Things couldn't be better in your relationships. Things couldn't be better with your kids. And God wants you to trust him and put your hands up, you know, if that's what you do, or, or at least in your heart and say, God, thank you for the rain. It's pouring down opportunity. It's pouring down blessing. God, you are so good and it feels good while you're good right now. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your bounty. And don't take things for granted because it's often on the mountaintop we lose track of God because we're not trusting Him in the rain. We're not thanking Him for His incredible bounty. So this week, begin to thank God for your house, for your car, for your opportunity, for your family, for your strength, for your salvation, for Him being the ultimate resurrection. But this week, for seven days, just seven days, really focus on trusting God in the season you're in. God, what would you have me do with the rain you poured upon me? Now, for some of us, you're in a valley. And you know you're in a valley, and you know you don't like the valley, and you're complaining about the valley, and who who wouldn't? I I would too. But for this week, just seven days, I want you every day to trust God instead of complain about it. For seven days, I want you to say, God, be my raven. I can't even think about tomorrow. I can't even think about this afternoon. God, be my raven this morning. Just give me enough. Give me enough strength to keep going. Give me enough hope to keep going. Give me enough forgiveness to keep going. Give me enough stamina to keep going. And then in the evening, it's maybe, God, need another dose, need another dose. And God is going to develop for you trusting him twice a day by trusting him to be the raven in ways that no other circumstance would grow you. Or maybe this week for you, it's relief. God is saying, you're stuck in a downward death spiral. And what I want you to do is I want you to trust me. It doesn't feel like you want to help anybody. It doesn't feel like you want to go anywhere. It doesn't feel like you want to even you know, see if there's other people around because you feel so down and discouraged and pushed down. But I want you this week, every day, to say, God, I'm going to trust you that I will find relief by being relief. And everything in your mind, everything in your emotions is going to say, oh, I, just, I don't have energy. I want you to try it for, for one week. Say, God, I want to trust you. When I start finding myself getting discouraged, when I find myself into a downward spiral, I want in that moment to say, God, who could I help? Who needs a word of encouragement? Who could, I, who could I be relief to? And see if God would not provide relief by you being relief. And know that through all the circumstances that he is the resurrection. And when you begin to wonder if God is against you or coming after you, you can say, no, God, it can't be that. You sent your son to die and be raised for me. The fire of God is available in the mountains and the valleys of life. And he wants you to know that he wants to be with you and walk through those valleys with you. And it's often true, I know in my life, and I know it's true in others, because we hear the stories all the time around Horizon, that God often does his best work, not when we're in the top of the mountain, but when we're in a valley we don't want to be in. In fact, I heard the story of Daryl Waltrip, and he shares... Let me share his story about how God used the mountains in his life to prepare him for a valley experience where he would finally call out and trust God. Let's listen together. 81 and 82 in NASCAR, those two years back-to-back, I won 24 races uh, and two championships. I was on the top of my game. We were unbeatable. Uh, we'd roll into town, and we'd check in a hotel, and they'd say, oh, are you here for the show? And I'd say, no, ma'am, I am the show. Athletes in general are selfish. It's part of the culture. People call it cocky. 
uh, arrogance, uh, all those all those adjectives that describe a, a, a successful athlete. But you have to be that way to stay on top. At least, at least in that moment, that's what you think. Fans hated me. They booed me. People wore shirts that said anybody but Waltrip. They threw beer cans and chicken bones at me. I'd say, yeah, bring it on, you know, it's not bothering me. But it bothered me a lot. It was that time in my life uh, when I met a, a minister, Dr. Cortez Cooper. He's asking me, you know, do you, do you believe that Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior? And I said, I said, well, I just don't know if I'm ready for that or not. off turn four and I got nerves spun back and into the inside wall. Wham! Dr. Cooper, the accident, uh, the success I'd had in the prior two years, uh, things just started kind of snowballing in my mind. I'm, I'm on the top of my game, but you know what? I, I, I could have I been, I could have been dead. When I finally came to and I realized what had happened to me, I started searching for the Lord. On a July night, hot, no air conditioning, sweating, crying in the hallway, and on my knees, Dr. Cooper, Stevie, and I, and uh, he prayed that, uh, that the Lord would come into my life, and, and he did. And uh, 1983 was an incredible year. Wasn't so great on the racetrack, but personally, uh, in my relationships with my wife and with everybody else, uh, my life took a huge turn. And that's something I learned. If you don't own success, you wouldn't have success if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. He owns success. The difference in him and you is he wants to share it. You know what my reward was? It wasn't another championship. It was, finally, that people said, we like DW. He's a great guy. He's had a great career. And I was both the most popular driver in 1989 and 1990. In my mind and in my life, uh, it was a, it was almost like a, a reward for all those things that I left behind and where I was headed. When you learn to put Him first in everything you do and give Him the glory and uh, the praise, your life's going to be a whole lot better off. Just uh, close in prayer, and maybe uh, you want to cry out to God in the same way as to God, but I don't know what this valley is, but God wants to work some things out in us during this valley. So let's pray together. Maybe just whatever that R is, say, God, I'm going to trust you in the... Tell God what you're going to trust Him in. God, if your Holy Spirit will just uh, hover over this room, that your Spirit will uh, be the raven and be the rain, that you offer the relief, that you will bring comfort into those, that you will rejoice with those who are rejoicing right now, that you will mourn with those who mourn. God, that you will offer what you do best, your strength, that you will do what you do best. You will restore for the years the locusts have eaten, that you will take the manure of life and you will spread it out and turn it into new growth in our hearts. And through this, we're going to trust you and give you glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see you all next week. Thanks again.